I'm Dr. Becky, and this is Good Inside. When I think about potential, what I'm interested in is your capacity to grow. Yes. And that depends much more on your motivation and the opportunities you have to learn than it does on your raw talent. Whether you think about that as intelligence or athletic ability or being a musical prodigy, like those starting points do not determine the distance you can travel. And I think that the parents think about this often backward, unfortunately. Today, I have Adam Grant on the podcast. Adam is an organizational psychologist. He's a best-selling author. And on a personal note, he's a friend and my TED Talk mentor. We talk all about the topic of potential. What is potential? Is potential someone's ability? Do you notice potential when you see your kid do something amazing? Or have we been thinking about potential in totally the wrong way? I promise you my discussion with Adam will leave you with a new perspective about what potential really is and how to bring it out in your kid. More after this. If you're anything like me, mornings can be a real struggle. Between making breakfast, prepping lunches, and making sure our kids actually brush their teeth, the last thing we have time for is a kid having a meltdown about what they're wearing. This is where Garanimals comes in. Garanimals is the original mix-and-match clothing brand for babies and toddlers in sizes newborn through 5T. They're easy-to-pair and fun-to-wear styles, empower kids to dress themselves, boosting their self-confidence and independence. Oh, and making mornings power struggle free for us parents. That is a win-win. You can find all of their fun mix-and-match styles from their new spring collection in Walmart stores and on walmart.com. So here's to easier mornings, confident kids, and parents reclaiming their sanity. Here's to Garanimals. I want to make sure you have all the information for my Deeply Feeling Kid program. I've gotten so many questions from parents that essentially say, hey, my kid sounds like a deeply feeling kid. Hey, this program you do sounds exactly like the program I would need. But my kid is neurodivergent. But my kid is ADHD. So I'm just worried it won't apply or won't end up being for me. I totally understand that worry. And I know with conviction, it's going to help. Kids with ADHD and deeply feeling kids, there's so much overlap. They both are oriented towards sensory overstimulation. They both tend to shut down when they actually need help. For both kids, typical parenting strategies tend not to work. They actually escalate things and can kind of overwhelm these kids further. I can't wait for you to start the DFK workshop. I actually would bet in the first 10 minutes you say, oh my goodness, this is my kid. I finally understand what's going on. And then you'll be equipped with a set of strategies you can implement in your home right away. You can get more info in the link in show notes or at goodinside.com. I can't wait to see you there. So you just wrote another book. Congratulations. Thank you. And this one feels different from your others. I mean, even just the title, Hidden Potential, and you tell me, you correct me, but I feel like your belief is that everyone has hidden potential. And your latest book is just kind of about how to help unlock it. 
And so I'm curious what made this topic come to mind for you. Why write this? Why now? What was going on in your life? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I do believe everyone has hidden potential. And I think it's a travesty that many people never discover it or develop it. And I think sometimes that happens because we doubt ourselves. Um, So that would be imposter syndrome. Other times it happens because other people doubt us. And that's when you end up feeling like an underdog. And Mm -hmm. the way that we respond to feeling underqualified or underestimated often limits our growth. Um, And that, I mean, that just, that hurts to watch that happen as a psychologist. It hurts to watch that happen as a parent, as a teacher, as a colleague, as a friend. And I feel like I've watched potential squandered all around me. I've also, Becky, been incredibly fortunate to benefit from having coaches and mentors who saw more potential in me than I saw in myself. And I wanted to write this book to pay forward the lessons I learned from them. So I've been thinking a lot over the past few years about what what do we know in psychology that would be helpful for everyone to understand? And the more I thought about this question, the more I realized this this is actually... In some ways, like the story of hidden potential is is the arc of my life. Um, I mean, I, I honestly, I wrote this book because I was told I couldn't write, hmm. and I was figured it was time to to change that narrative. When were you told that? Like your early years, later on? When I arrived in college, the first thing I did as a, a new freshman at Harvard was take the required writing test, hmm. and I failed. I was told that I would be best off in a remedial writing course, which was it was known as writing for people who spoke English as a sixth language um, and for jocks. And that was kind of devastating. Like here, here I am already feeling like an imposter. I don't belong at Harvard. What if I'm the one mistake? And then they tell me I can't write. Mm. And I think this is my sixth book. I am certainly not as good of a writer as I aspire to be, but I feel like I've I've gotten pretty good. <laughs> I've gotten a hell of a lot better than I was then. And I guess I had hidden potential that that got unlocked uh, through the last couple decades. And uh, I feel like most of the things I'm proud of went that way. Well, there's so many things there. First of all, I think there's a message. Even in college, right? You're, I don't know, you're 18. I'm sure the same thing is true for us now, those of us who are older than 18. There still could be hidden potential. But I also want to end up talking to you about our kids. Because when I was reading your book, I feel like that came up over and over and over. This kind of, I think sometimes pressure we feel almost as a parent when you see potential in your kid. And sometimes our efforts to bring it out can almost, you know, stifle it, at least temporarily. Like you said, it's never too late. Kids can keep doing things. And you know, changing course. But I want to go back to your story before we do that. So you're getting this message of you're a bad writer. You should be in a remedial course. Here you are, you know, a handful of years after your age of 18, a prolific writer. And I think most people who know you would say an amazingly clear, powerful writer. What helped you get from point A to point B? How did this hidden potential become more and more known? (laughs) Well, thank you. I will, uh, I'll try to live up to that. I think, the the big lesson for me that I guess didn't crystallize until I sat down to write this book was that, you know, I thought I thought I was being evaluated on my cognitive skills. How well do I structure an argument? How, com- you know, convincing is, you know, the point that I'm making. But 
actually what drove my growth ended up being a set of character skills that I developed. And I know we're going to talk a lot about this with kids. But for me, what that meant was basically, I, I, so I, I had this choice. They said, look, we're not going to force you to take the remedial writing class. But just so you know, like no one who's ever gone straight into the regular writing after you know doing this poorly has ever gotten like, an A. Um, and you're probably going to get a C plus. Uh, and I'm like, no, I don't want that on my transcript. So I, I had to make this tough choice of like, what will I do? And I decided that I would rather be somebody who takes on challenges than somebody who shies away from them. And I said, I'm going to skip the remedial class. I'm going to embrace the discomfort of potentially doing poorly in the class. I'm going to become a human sponge and learn everything I can about how to write. And I'm going to reject the pressure to be perfect and say, you know what? If I get a a B in writing, at least I took on the challenge and I'm going to grow a lot through that. And that was uh, that was pretty pivotal. You ended up weaving in so many different things from your book into your response, which is so valuable for people to know because you really do explain that process and you really break it down. So you 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 dropped this, but I want to come back. Skills of character. I think most people are listening say like I know what those words means, but I've never actually heard those things together. So can you explain? Yeah, I've I've actually completely changed my view of character in the last few years. So I used to think about it as virtue. I guess, you know, I was, I was an Aristotelian in saying that character is a habit. It's a set of principles that you live by. And one of the things that psychologists and economists have, have learned over the past decade is that character is not just a matter of will. It's a question of skill. So the real challenges around character are, can you put your principles into practice? If you're a procrastinator by personality, can you override that tendency when you need to deliver on a deadline for somebody you care about. If you're a shy introvert like me, can you put your character skills into action to stand up on stage and, you know, educate and entertain a group of students? You know, those are actually skill questions more than will questions. Will will maybe get you to, you know, to your computer or get you to show up on stage, but to deliver on those goals, that's actually... You know, it's a it's a can do question, not a will do question. So much it's a it's it's a know how challenge. And so, I think what we're really missing is um, is a yeah a, a set of skills that allow us to say, okay, these are these are the the principles I stand for. How do I how do I make sure I stand by those on a difficult day? And what's a skill of character that you feel like most people are probably like working to build or? you know, would benefit from developing. So I actually just collected some data on this. I didn't have the data when the book had to go to press, but now I do. So uh, we launched a hidden potential quiz that I wrote trying to use a combination of psychometrics and also a little bit of fun. And uh, we've had over 38,000 people take it in the past month. And I've found that the character skill that most people are struggling with of the ones that I've studied is being an imperfectionist. Uh, which mm-hmm. which I would define as having the discipline to know when it's important to aim for the best and when it's okay to accept flaws and mistakes. Easier mm-hmm. said than done. Seriously. Just to break that down, because there there is like a multiplicity you're holding at once. I think people hear, wait, so like the character skill, the skill of character, I might need to 
build is a tolerance for my own imperfection. And that is going to help bring out my potential and achieve more. Like, just just connect those dots because I, I see you nodding. I think you're like, yeah, that's exactly it. But it sounds on the surface counterintuitive. Yeah, I, th- I think you just captured it really well. So when psychologists study perfectionism, they find that it can stunt our growth. And in fact, like I think if perfectionism were a medication, it would come with a huge warning label. Uh, it would say, warning may cause stunted growth. Mm. Because what happens to kids, and this is true for adults too, when they start striving per- for perfection is they think any flaw is unacceptable. And so then they only try things that they know they're going to ace. And that means their comfort zone gets narrower and narrower. They stop taking risks. They stop seeking out challenges. They don't put themselves in new and uncomfortable situations. And that limits their learning quite a bit. And so the the idea here is to say, you have to be comfortable enough with making mistakes and with failing to to put yourself in those new situations, um, to treat an obstacle in front of you, not as a barrier, but as a crucible moment that's going to you know test and and develop your your capabilities and that's part of how you reach your potential. Yes, I want to give a concrete example of this with my daughter. So during COVID times, she was um home doing school right on Zoom, right? She was like kindergarten Zoom. It was like the worst <laughs> the worst thing. Um right, so stressful and she was working on writing. Okay? And she at the time definitely had some perfectionistic, you know, kind of tendencies and she she was reading already. And so the struggle was when she wrote something, she knew she spelled it wrong because she could read it and say, that's not right, but she didn't know how to do it correctly. And so I watched her write a word and she was supposed to write a sentence and erase it and try to write the word again and erase it. And it was so painful, right? And here's where I think that duality of imperfection and perfection can kind of come together. I was like, okay, so she likes to be, quote, good at things. Let me use that to her benefit. So I said to her, I said, look, I just want to tell you something. You're in kindergarten, and this is serious. You're really not supposed to know how to spell. I'm just telling you, like, you're really not. And if you spell too many words right, I I just want to be honest. Like, I'm going to tell your teacher, and, like, your teacher's probably going to talk to you. And like, you're not really doing your job as a kindergartner. And so I'm going to walk out of the room. And like, I know you like to do a good job at things. I know that's the type of person you are. So when I come back, like, I just hope you've done a good job. And like, there's really not too many words that are spelled correctly. Because if not, me and Miss Gopal are definitely going to have a discussion. And I, I watched Adam, her like eyes light up in this way. And it really was, I could cry, like the first time after days of struggle and stress where she actually completed a sentence, right? And of course, the irony is now she's doing more. She's learning more. She's also learning her struggle is actually like a beautiful part of her process to be able to bring out her potential of writing. And I think that like turning that narrative was so key for her. That's such a great Dr. Becky wisdom drop. Because it's it's the exact opposite of what every parent's impulse is. My instinct in that situation is to say, don't worry about making mistakes. You'll get it right eventually. But that only, like, if I mean, it's so it's so hard to deliver that message without your kid feeling like, but I need to get it right. And that's that's the message I forget that I'm conveying is, all right, these mistakes are they're problematic, and so you have to make them go away. As opposed to, I, I just want you to, to keep getting better. And, you know, I guess this is, this is what I've, I guess what I've learned from the, the research on perfectionism. So Thomas Kern and his colleagues find that 
like perfectionism has increased over time across the US, Canada, the UK. And it seems to be in part, not just due to social media, but you could track it even a generation before there was social media, the spike. And um, two of the the strong predictors of the rise in perfectionism are escalating parental expectations and an increase in harsh criticism from parents. Mm. So like parents are expecting kids to, to be flawless and then you know, really reaming them when they don't live up to those standards. And that, that can create a very vicious cycle where kids feel like, you know, in addition to the kind of the narrowing of, of competence that we talked about, kids end up just feeling inadequate constantly. Um, and that leads to yeah. depression, anxiety, burnout. This is all well-documented, of course. And so I love your model as an alternative to say, hey, actually, you're, you're already ahead. You're not even supposed to know how to do this. Right. I always say to about my kids, I don't know if I've said this to you, is like the thing I hope they're really good at is I hope they're really good at struggling. Like that's the thing. I hope they're excellent at it. And they're like, you know, to the point where like when they're young, <laughs> I always think like we do to some degree like brainwash our kids so we can actually use that to, for their benefit. So I remember when my kids were young doing a puzzle and having a hard time and I was like, oh, this is so tricky. Good thing you're a kid who loves tricky things. And they were kind of like, oh. I am a kid who loves tricky things. And like they would say at times, like, this is really hard. I love hard things, right? And I feel like we think about potential as pure genius ability. But that's not the potential you're talking about. So can you explain that difference? Yeah. When I think about potential, what I'm interested in is your capacity to grow. Yes. And that depends much more on your motivation and the opportunities you have to learn than it does on your raw talent. Whether you think about that as intelligence or athletic ability or being a musical prodigy, like those starting points do not determine the distance you can travel. And I think that the parents think about Mm. this often backward, unfortunately. Well, I, I think sometimes those kids, and I've said this about the kids in my family and kids, you know, families I've consulted with, the kid who has all this, quote, raw, you know, IQ, high, such a high IQ, where they really are playing the drums at age three in a way that we look and we're like, wow, that's really crazy, amazing. Those are the kids I worry about. I worry about those kids, right? Because they get told so early, this is who you are. You are perfect. You are, quote, exceptional, right? That is so limiting for growth because it's so much pressure. It is, and it also... It really stifles their creativity. So there's there's some evidence to suggest that child prodigies rarely grow up to become adult geniuses when it comes to creative breakthroughs. Mm. And mm. you know, I think I think it's a cruel thing to do to a kid to say, okay, you have this, you know, this impressive aptitude. And so we're gonna teach you to memorize a Mozart sonata or, mm. you know, to to know all the digits of pi but they don't ever learn to think for themselves. And so like, they've, they've mastered the rote ability to produce somebody else's work, um, but not to imagine and dream up something of their own. And you know, I, I don't want to put all the blame on parents. Mm-hmm. You know, this, is, this is a challenge for teachers too. There's some evidence that the, <laughs> the most creative kid in a classroom is the least likely to be the teacher's pet. Yes. Because, you know, they're, they're constantly going off script and not following they're directions. Not, they're not so people-pleasing, no. those creatives, you know? No. 
Like, not, and and so you know, I think sometimes teachers inadvertently wanting to get the whole classroom on the same page, you know, end up standing in the way of of you know kids flourishing and tinkering and experimenting. But I think to I guess to to go back to the point about potential, I think yeah. One of the things we want to do is we want to invest in teaching kids character skills early. And that's exactly what mm-hmm. you're doing when you normalize struggle. Like if you teach your kids, hey, like you're somebody who loves a challenge. That's allowing them to to approach the next impediment in their path with, you know, with enthusiasm, with gusto, with curiosity, as opposed to seeing that as a threat to their ego or their competence. If you're a parent of a tween or teen, this next message is for you. We are living in a digital first world, and we're raising our older kids amidst an unprecedented mental health crisis. We know that the landscape has changed, and raising tweens and teens has never been harder. Plus, the data around us and the news coverage is staggering, and we know that reports of anxiety and depression amongst tweens and teens is at an all-time high. We know all of this is true, and still, I don't want to spread a message of fear. Not at all. I want to spread a message of empowerment and hope, because after all, here at Good Inside, we're really on a mission to help you be a sturdy leader so you can raise sturdy kids. And I know it's never too late to start this journey. I am so excited to let you know that we are extending our support and resources in Good Inside membership to parents of tweens and teens. From how to navigate phones and social media to how to support your teen through insecurity and anxiety, we equip parents with exactly what they need to help their teens successfully navigate through this turbulent world. Good Inside membership is now supporting parents of kids ages 0 through 18. And what will you get? You'll have access to a digital, searchable library of short videos, scripts, and workshops for every single in-the-moment problem and struggle you might be facing. You get access to a safe, private, away-from-social-media community monitored by trained Good Inside coaches. You also have access to ongoing support groups with other parents led by Good Inside coaches to talk about the unique struggles of the teenage years. It's all available at goodinside.com. I can't wait to see you inside. Talk to me about motivation, Uh, about kind of, you know, you have skills for character, and then you talk a lot in your book about structures for motivation. And I think that's probably on parents' mind too. So, okay, potential isn't just inability. It's my kid's capacity to grow. How do I help my kid become more motivated to grow? Well, I think my my favorite way to think about this is to say, like, the person most capable of motivating your kid is definitely not you as a parent. I mean, there's a wall there where, I mean, how many times I've seen this with our kids. I know you've seen this many times as well. How many times do you just get a psychological reactance response where they just do the opposite of what you wanted Mm -hmm. just because they don't want to be told what to do by their parent when if it was a teacher they admired or a mentor or a coach that they looked up to, the same message would have landed very differently. So 
I think, I, I guess I would say a little bit of humility is required at the start to say that your very status as their parent sometimes disqualifies you from motivating them. I think that's right. That motivation, I mean, it feels like pressure to kids, right? Because kids know what we're invested in, right? They know what we ask questions about. That shows them our values, right? And so it's hard to ask too many questions to your kid without them thinking, oh, this really matters to my dad. And so basically they're saying I need to be this way. And then they are overloaded with pressure, which can get in the way of motivation. Exactly. So then what what does help a kid feel motivated? Well, so you want to help them uncover their own motivation. So I've become a big fan of um, what I've come to think of as the coach effect, which is basically the, the 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 core finding is that if you want your kid to do something, instead of giving them advice and encouragement, you should actually ask them to advise and encourage someone else. Mm. And that can build their own motivation and confidence because they realize I already have the knowledge I need and I'm excited to put that into practice. So mm-hmm. um, a moment where I did this by accident was... When I was getting ready to give my first TED talk, I was I was terrified. And uh, Becky, it was it was kind of the opposite of of how you seemed like, in a few days before <laughs> TED. You were so calm and collected. You knew you were going to crush it. Fake news. Fake news. No, I I mean I, I was there. I can I can vouch for this person personally. I watched you. I'm like, okay, that that is masterful emotion regulation um, and true professionalism. Um, so yeah, I was not that. I was freaking out. And I thought I'd been on a lot of stages by that point, and I'd gotten over my stage fright, but the, the TED stage was a whole nother level. So a few weeks beforehand, I was, I think I was pacing around, like practicing my talk, wanting to make sure I had every word memorized. You know the drill. So our oldest daughter, Joanna, was was watching me, and I think she was eight at the time. And she started making fun of me because uh, she said, "I moves like I move like a muppet sometimes, and like I just looked like a goofball." And I told her I was really nervous, and I asked her for advice. I said, "What should I do?" And she said, "Well, you should find a smiling face in the audience, and that will calm you down." It's like great advice from any age, but especially for an eight-year-old. So I, I asked a couple of people I knew to sit in the front rows and I, I locked eyes with one of them early in the talk. And yeah, I, I still I still think I sounded a little bit like Darth Vader when I was breathing partway through the talk when I rewatch it now, which is excruciating. But it, it, it went fine, all things considered. It was, I think it was about as, as good as I could have done at the time. So a few weeks later, um, Joanna's super shy at the time. And yeah, I was wanting to motivate her to come out of her shell. And she's got a school play coming up. And I can tell she's really nervous. So instead of trying to motivate her, I asked her what advice she gave to me. Mm. And she remembered like, that she knew the answer. She had already an insight about what to do. And I saw her get on that stage and lock eyes with Allison and me. And just, like, she came to life. She was beaming. She seemed comfortable. And it was so powerful to watch her motivate herself through giving advice to me. And yes. I guess what I learned from that experience is we know, of course, that we want to like, we want to support our kids and we want to show them unconditional love. We forget that they also need to feel relied on, not just that they can rely on us. And mm-hmm. I think one of the best ways to motivate a kid is to show them that you you rely on them and you trust them to to motivate 
somebody else, right? Or to advise somebody else. And that's where they often discover their own confidence and competence. Sorry, that was a really long answer. No, there's so many things it makes me think about. I mean, I'm, this is just a new thought that I'm having right now is the whole idea of potential, right? I mean, you, you're now the expert on not me, but is that it's like in someone, right? And so we don't bring out potential as a parent by putting it into our kid and then taking that back out. That was just ours. It's just like a transfer, right? And so if you think about potential, it comes from the baseline idea. And then you and I are actually very similar in this, that it's inside, right? I talk about there's like goodness inside. There's potential inside and we have to help a kid access it. But that is actually a very different framework than having the thing and needing to give it to them. Light right? bulb. I, you, just, you just captured something that, it, frankly, it's implicit in the book and it did not hit me until you just said it. Like, <laughs> potential is not something that you create. It's something you unleash. Yes. Oh, I have the chills. It, it is. I, and I, I, can't and you, I cannot believe, where were you when I was writing this book, Becky? Adam, that's a good line. You got to get it back into the book. I know. It's, it, I'll have to get it in for the paperback. <laughs> but it's so, it's so interesting because throughout the book, I talk about unlocking and unleashing potential, but I never made that explicit that it's not, it's not something that you can induce um, in somebody else. It's something that you have to unearth in them. Yes. And you know, something I think about a lot is in any system or relationship, so certainly me and my kid, right? Any two people, I, I, there's only a hundred percent of a quality to go around. Stay with me, okay? So let's say the quality is motivation. The more I own it, the more my kid will have less of it. Because if I'm owning their motivation, inherently there's only a hundred percent. And so the more I say things like, did you do your homework? Did you do your homework? You need to do your homework by tomorrow. You need to do, okay. I now have a hundred percent of the motivation for my kid to do their homework. It is no wonder they have zero percent. Like you can't get to more than a hundred. And I, I've learned this with my kids where even forget homework. Like I remember when my son's room just like always had his towel on the floor. And it just bugged me. I was like, do you not see this? Like what, right? And I remember saying him for a while, like pick up your towel, pick up your towel. And like, right now I have the idea to pick it up. I have the words to pick it up. It's no wonder my son isn't learning because he has 0% of that that I've taken 100, right? And I remember thinking, number one, to some degree, we're always trying to work ourselves out of a job. So what I'm doing is not helping me do that. Number two, I remember this 100% thing. And I just said to him, hey, what would you need to do to remember to pick up your towel? Like what, literally, like, let's just make it like it's a concrete thing. Like, cause you're a responsible kid and I don't know, maybe you don't see it. You're not thinking of it. Like, what would you need to do to jog your memory? And, and right away, he's like, I don't know, like see a note. And I was like, oh, where would you put that note? And he was like, I don't know, like, right, like, you know, right near where he always drops his towel. And I was like, oh, I wonder if that's the best place or if there's a more visible place. He goes, oh, I don't know, maybe like by my door. And I was like, oh, that's a great idea. And then he ended up writing in his own handwriting. Again, I didn't want to take that percent away. Pick up my towel, putting it at his door. And nine times out of 10, he started picking up his towel. Like you said, like there was a skill missing, <laughs> right? And the more I own that skill, why would he tap into his potential if I was taking 100% of that for him? I, this framing is so powerful of saying, okay, <laughs> like I want my kid to own a larger percentage of the knowledge and the motivation. Yes. Never thought about it that way. Okay, you've you've just given me, uh, a, you know, it's funny. I've <laughs> I've sometimes complained about like what we do after we write books. Actually, Glennon Doyle put it best when when she said like, "Why do I have to say words about the words I've already written?" And <laughs> that, 
that that <laughs> resonated. But I have a response now because you get to learn new things from the people who read and interview you. And this is this is a great moment of that. Yeah, I, I think I think you're onto something really powerful. And I guess that maybe the takeaway for me is that if you're going to unlock potential rather than trying to instill it, then mm-hmm. the place to start is to say, I want my kids to be responsible for what their goals are and how they learn. Yes. And I think that framework, I'm even like, I'm closing my eyes. You seem like the visual of there are things blocking their potential. And I'm like an excavator with them trying to figure out what those things are. So maybe I remove some, they remove some. But what you were saying with your daughter to me is the most beautiful part of parenting. It's like you watch your kid have the aha moment. Like you can't manufacture that when you give it to them. When you say to your daughter, hey, you could find someone in the front row and lock eyes with them and that would make you less nervous. Like, I guess she'd be like, all right, thanks, dad. Like, and she probably won't even do it because it feels annoying because it's her dad's idea. But either way, what doesn't happen, like my guess is you remember the way she looked when she came up with an idea for you. And I wonder in terms of when you're saying potential is like your capacity to grow. Like I have to believe every time your body manufactures the aha, I just discovered a new idea within me moment that that is our capacity to grow the more of those moments you have. Yes. Yes. I love that. I think it's interesting because at some level, I'm I'm trying to think of how to best capture this. I guess, I guess what I would say is it seems to me that where we screw this up the most is when we think we already know the answer. Mm. And like, this is why it so often backfires when parents coach their kid in the sport they played. Where do you see, what do you see there? Because I actually get so many questions about parents and intensive sports. It's a whole scene, right? Yeah. I mean, I think if you're going to coach your kid's sports team, the best thing you can do is coach them in a sport you know nothing about because then you're learning it together mm. and your kid can teach you about it. Well, do you think, it's funny, I have often said like on the soccer field, you watch parents like, you know, unfulfilled dreams, you know, just act <laughs> themselves out on their children, you know? But maybe what it is, is... It's their sense, now I feel sad, of their still hidden potential that they regret or feel bad about, and that's kind of acted out on their kids. I think that's really poignant. I think, yes, the research on this talks about parental over-identification and over-involvement. And the thesis is, and there's good evidence for it, that parents are defining themselves in terms of their kids' success. And I, I always want to, I want to sit those parents down and say, your kid is not a reflection of your success. Like, you, you, you should not define your worth as a parent by what your kids achieve. You should define it by who they become, um, and the the character they demonstrate. Oh, and by the way, like if you help them build those character skills, they're going to achieve more anyway. But I don't want to have mm-hmm. to trojan horse horse this. I like I want you to care about you know, the the values they live by um, and the skills they learn independent of the results they produce um, yeah. or the status they at- attain. But I, I think you've highlighted an, another, another factor here, which is probably motivating a lot of the same parents, but also fueling another group of parents, which is, yeah, they have potential that never got realized. I mean, it's amazing how many people have these regrets from high school, right? I should have stuck with that sport. I shouldn't have quit the piano. I should have tried debate. 
like I should have studied abroad. Then I, I would have actually learned the foreign language that I stumbled my way through. And yeah, I think a lot of parents are maybe living those shattered dreams vicariously through their kids. And and I think one of the things your book also gives like a roadmap for is it's it's actually so empowering as a parent to say, okay, like that potential that I feel like hasn't been fully realized, that's real for me. I feel that 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 seems to be in me. And actually, like maybe my best chance of working that through isn't putting on my kid. Like I, I'm I'm still alive and kicking. Like, okay, maybe I'm not living abroad for six months, but I don't know, maybe maybe I am with my family or maybe I am taking a language class or maybe I am finding an adult basketball league or, right? And realizing again that that, that potential is still in them, right? It's still there. It's not dead just because they're however years old. Yeah, I think the hard part about that is like with sports in particular, there's a, like, there's a ceiling or there's a, there's a critical yes. window where- like you feel like you're past your prime and you can't do it, but you could switch to another sport. Um, you could choose another activity. I'm like, okay, anybody who feels like they missed their window in basketball, like there's tennis and there's ping pong and now there's pickleball for you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, okay, one last question because I imagine people listening to this thinking, like, oh, oh no, <laughs> oh no, with my kids. Like I feel like maybe... I've, you know, unintendedly, you know, kind of quote squashed their potential or I put on a lot of pressure or I've maybe I've taken motivation away from them because I do kind of so powerfully own it for them. What what are your thoughts about that? What what next for those those of us listening thinking that? You're the parenting expert. <laughs> well, is the potential still in there? Is that what you would say? Yeah, of course it's to- there. I mean that that's why though like it it often starts to emerge when when kids go off to college and they have independence for the first time or mm-hmm. when they you know they they change to a new teacher or a new coach who sees something in them or has a a slightly um less authoritative style yeah and i would add just bring it full circle to ted and you know my love of repair that what an amazing moment to say to your kid like i listened to something it really made me think and i think you can say a bunch of things you say i don't think i always give you credit for like all the things you really can do on your own. Or I think sometimes I put on a lot of pressure from you and that's something I'm going to do less of, right? It, it, just something really simple like that can can be so relieving for a kid. Yeah, and I, I think I would go even a step further, which is something I know you're a fan of um, and I am too, which is like, this is a moment to ask kids for advice and say, like, I, I did this recently with our kids and said, like, I, I know I've, like, I've been repeating this behavior over and over again and I'm doing it because I'm not aware of it in the moment. Like can you can you let me know when it's happening? I love that. And in a way they're helping us build skills, the skills we need, right? Because we have the potential to be less authoritarian or less controlling or to step away a little bit more and it's true sometimes sometimes we need our kids help to like point those moments out. Are you saying that even bad parents have hidden potential? I am saying all parents are good inside and that, you know, opening ourselves up to the idea that we we all have the capacity to learn. There's no parent I know who wouldn't say parenting is one of the hardest thing I've ever done. And so, yeah, I, I, there are a lot of opportunities to learn and grow. 
Adam, this was so amazing to talk with you. I, I feel like I always think new thoughts and that's like the most fun part of talking to someone. Same. I learned so many things from hearing your questions and your reactions. And I really feel like I would be a better parent if I talked to you more. Well, let's get, let's get that on the calendar. I think that needs to happen. All right. Thank you, Adam. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. To share a story or ask me a question, go to goodinside.com backslash podcast. You could also write me at podcast at goodinside.com. Parenting is the hardest and most important job in the world. And parents deserve resources and support so they feel empowered, confident, and connected. I'm so excited to share Good Inside membership, the first platform that brings together content and experts you trust with a global community of like-valued parents. It's totally game-changing. Good Inside with Dr. Becky is produced by Jesse Baker and Eric Newsom at Magnificent Noise. Our production staff includes Sabrina Farhi, Julia Natt, and Kristen Muller. I would also like to thank Erica Belsky, Mary Panico, and the rest of the Good Inside team. And one last thing before I let you go. Let's end by placing our hands on our hearts and reminding ourselves, even as I struggle and even as I have a hard time on the outside, I remain good inside.